0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to episode 31 of A Life in Ruins Podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carl Togover, and tonight I am joined uh, just by my co-host, Connor John and David Ian Howe is, uh, I think, shooting a commercial for Maybelline right now, uh, and he was unable to join us. <laughs> so tonight, we had a very special guest, a close friend of mine. We were interviewing uh, PhD candidate Mackenzie Corey, who's in the anthropology department at the University of Indiana Bloomington, the third one we've had from that department, third. Time of charm so mr Corey, how are you doing tonight i'm doing pretty well how about yourself i think we're doing great connor how about yourself
2: oh you know <laughs> <laughs> no i'm doing i'm doing fine on this uh what is it the second second day of september it's doing fantastic so mac i know you through proximity through like damien and cassidy and all these like university of wyoming folks In general, how did you kind of get into science and and archaeology when you're growing up?
0: You've probably heard this a dozen times before, but I was really into paleontology as a kid. When When I was seven, I could name off half of the dinosaurs out there. Don't remember any of it now. As a kid, I liked playing in the dirt. I had Tonka trucks and would just dig into the side of the hill out behind the house. But then in high school, I kind of went through several different phases. Like maybe I want to be an aerospace engineer. Oh, well, maybe I want to be a doctor. And then I realized that I really want a chance to work outside. So I thought about kind of what can I do where it's scientific. I get to work outside. I get to kind of capitalize on what I'm good at and at the time, I was getting really into history, so I just thought, let's combine it all, look at archaeology, and I turned out to love it. And you're a, you're a Wyoming boy, aren't you? No. Uh, I went to University of Wyoming, but I've lived all across the U.S. My, uh, my dad's in the steel industry. I've spent most of my childhood in Pennsylvania, went to high school in Kansas, and then moved out to Wyoming for undergrad. But at the end of the day, Wyoming's where I feel most at home.
1: Hmm. Understood, man. Yeah, I've always associated with you with uh, Wyoming, and I, I can't remember why. Because I know we've had this conversation about your upbringing several times over, over the dinner table or or the bar. And as as you mentioned, we've heard it several times. Hashtag dinosaurs are a gateway drug to science. Yes. Thank you, thank you, Talia, for DMNS for for that amazing soon to be T
2: shirt and stamp
1: um, that we got coming on. Also, this so, po- why-
2: this podcast is sponsored by Tonka Trucks. <laughs> Very early on tonka trucks made us the way we are so going on from that carlton
1: absolutely why did you choose wyoming for your undergraduate
0: degree so i toured three schools in high school i uh toured ku coming from kansas it was a natural choice i met with jack hoffman when i was there and uh, it like it was close to home it was cool started filling out my application for that and then uh, my dad and I took a road trip and went and saw uh, Wyoming and CU Boulder. So at at Wyoming, I just kind of fell in love with the campus. We got there and the campus just felt like the perfect size for me. I met with the honor with some of the honors program people there, and I just I liked the whole feel of it. I liked the buildings. They met with the not registrar admissions people and they offered me a decent scholarship that definitely contributed. And then I met with a few professors in the department. I think I met with maybe Bob Kelly and Todd Surabell and chatted, chatted with them a little bit. And it just, it felt right. Then next day went down to CU Boulder actually met with Doug Banforth, your advisor. I'm sure he doesn't remember it, but it just felt too big for me. Like I, I was coming from a town of about ten thousand in Kansas, and Boulder just felt huge.
1: Yeah, I yeah uh, Boulder and, Boulder yeah, sucks. <laughs> God, you and what was that other girl's name, Carson? Both of you guys could just shove it. I love Boulder, and Bob Kelly wanted to come here when he Fort, was an undergrad or his that Fort master's, Collins
2: whatever. is way better. Get out of here, even hey, though you're hey, way hey, better Carlton. funded.
0: Oh, geez. You're, you know what I like? I like paying three hundred fifty bucks a month in rent.
1: Hey-o. Oh, dude! I, I know, I know. If I could, if I could move the Wyoming housing market down to here, I'd be Uh-oh. set. But, you know, we really, you know, to Connor, we need to reach out to, to Bob and Todd because we need royalties for fifth beginning and like people going to Wyoming at this point. I think anytime they have a new student, they said, oh, I listen to Life in Ruins. We need a we need a chunk of that tuition money, free advertisement. <laughs> um,
2: so um, <sighs> were you familiar with like Todd and Bob when you first like came to Wyoming? Did you? Un- I mean,
0: so I had seen uh, Nicole Wagas back on like PBS documentaries and Melissa Murphy. When I met with Bob, he seemed pretty cool, but it's embarrassing to say I had no idea who he was.
1: Same, bro. I went there to be his <laughs> student and I had no idea who that
0: man was. But yeah, it just, it was... It was a really good fit for me. And I actually stopped. Well, I never bothered starting an application to Boulder and I stopped filling out my application to KU. I only applied to Wyoming for undergrad.
2: That's awesome, man. And so when you when you got there, how did you get involved with Hell Gap? Because that's because that's a huge part of kind of Wyoming archaeology at this point. You know, Mary Lou and Marcel have been there for so long and have really put this site on the map. So how did you kind of get into that?
0: It was dumb luck. I was a bit of a moron two weeks into uh, classwork. I was like, yeah, this is pretty easy. I have lots of free time. I should try and volunteer for something. So I went to Todd and I asked Todd about it. And uh, he didn't have anything for a new undergrad at the moment. But he's like, go talk to Marcel. Marcel's always looking for people. So I talked to Marcel and he's like, "Okay, uh, come in next week. We can start having you pick Matrix. And I picked Matrix for a year.
1: Oh, no. (laughs) How much uh,
0: calcium carbonate did you have to sort through? So much. Just meters of calcium carbonate in gallon sized baggies. Uh, But yeah, After that, he liked my volunteer work, so he offered me an hourly job working in his lab, and it just kind of snowballed from there. following summer, I was working out in the field with him at Last Canyon in Hell Gap and haven't really stopped. I think this is the first summer since I started that I actually didn't get out to Hell Gap. Yeah,
1: dude. Um, I think that's, in terms of field stories, not being able to go, that's pretty universal for a lot of us through COVID. Which unfortunately is still going on. You got to be, as an undergraduate, right? A crew chief at uh, Hell Gap, which is now a National Historic Landmark?
0: Right after undergraduate. So it was the year okay. I graduated that summer.
1: Okay. That's still, that's very impressive. I also did that. And I know the rigors of working for Marcel and Mary <laughs> on the field yeah, um, and running a site. And, uh, you know, you know, I think one of the most valuable things I learned about Hellgap was not just like how to manage students, but how to support, feed and uh, upkeep a site.
2: Yeah, because well, especially yeah. that one, because it has a, it's a ton of upkeep you have to do. It's not like a... It's not like a you know some site you go dig one summer, you know, and you're done or whatever. They have like a is it a building around that block? Several. It's super important. Uh, several. several. Yeah.
0: So I learned. Uh, pretty much, I uh, some night. So I started working there when I was under twenty one. So when people would go into town to uh, go to the bar, I would hang out in the park, check my email, and call people, and then I had to start learning how to do things like small engine repair, roofing, uh, just uh, using some <laughs> of my free time to keep the site functioning.
1: Electrical,
0: like carpentry. Yeah. It's like
1: extra stuff. It's like, oh, the generator's broken again. You know, it's just like, oh, gonna you know, yeah. go fix the generator. I'm like, dude, I don't know anything about engines or yeah. electrical or fuel maintenance. Like, I don't know these things. Yeah, Hellgap. Hellgap is a fun site, and uh, yeah, I definitely I miss it. a I miss it a bit. It has a special place in my heart. And then also, you have to do tours at Hellgap. There's there's yes. Visitations.
0: yes, there are, and there is a terrible YouTube video of me on the internet giving a tour.
1: One of my favorite lines, and I I totally stole this from uh, uh, a guy named Justin, who's a graduate student at KU. He was he was also there. He'd uh, he'd always finish the tour. He's like, you know we'll never know what uh, paleo Indians used to call um, this site or where they used to call home. But we do know when they came across the horizon and saw this area, they said, wow, that's one hell of a gap. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the dorkiest dad joke, but it was just, everybody thought it was, it was, it was funny. And I've just kind of never, never forgotten that, that little piece of, um, of working there. Um, you know, that's what, it, uh, hell gap always does 10 by fours, 10 days in the field, four days off. And you know, yep. by. By day seven, tensions are rising. No, oh, yeah.
2: No way. <laughs> there is no tension in fieldwork ever. Kind of segueing off of that, what do you think you learned at Hell Gap that has contributed to like your future academic career?
0: Honestly, I, I learned so much there that's contributed to my career right now. Part of it is just working long days. There are times where just because a deadline's coming up or something, I have to put in a 16, 17-hour day. And I started doing that working for Marcel at Hellgap. I would also say just the basic field skills uh, to work in the U.S. because I took my field school in Scotland where things are completely different. I was taught to, uh, well, to dig based on stratigraphy, which when I first started working for Marcel was a disaster because I ended up doing a, uh, a 15 centimeter level <laughs> I just kept looking for the next strata. So. Oh, no, <laughs> Mac.
1: That's three <laughs> levels at Hellgap that you condensed into one that you put into it, it, one giant gallon bag. We've lost I, all context. What I have just, you done, Mac? I just what kept have you done? filling
0: up buckets. Uh, so I really being able to be an archaeologist in the U.S. And then also I did my senior honors thesis at Hellgap on some of the stone circles there. So it, that really got me on the path of researching stone circles. Heck yeah. That's, oh, that's yeah, awesome. there, are,
1: there are stone circles there. They're at a little locality 4 Oh, they're all over
0: Carlton. <sighs> I've just seen the few, man. You've probably driven over several of them on the way to locality one. <laughs> you know that's... what? You're not
2: wrong. That's, that's that interesting thing that I've, um, I've actually (laughs) never been to hell gap. And also you, you, uh, dug through at least three haggis levels, um, (laughs) (laughs) while you were doing that. Um, (laughs) but yeah, so like, uh, there's this like huge paleo Indian focus, but there's so much more to be dealt with there, but it's, it's, but that's what makes the money. That's what, yeah. That's what keeps that place famous is that paleo Indian kind of formation there.
0: But yeah, there's there's everything from Paleo Indian to historic components, and I yeah I applied for a grant at, through uh, Wyoming, ended up getting it, and it was able to uh, piggyback off of Marcel's field season, but doing some of my own research out back back behind uh, locality three. When you're no longer working at
1: locality one and you're out on your own on the open prairie mm-hmm. looking for, uh, for stone circles, was the first thing that came to your mind this?
0: It was nice to not. It was nice not being cheek to cheek with people.
2: There <laughs> was a
1: talking about talking about Scotland and like haggis. <laughs> I was like, I need to download this right now. And throw it <laughs> on the, the soundboard.
2: But there was much less like dr- people didn't get like drawn and quartered very often at Hellgate. No, did they?
0: no. Um, we after my first year, we had to take down the frame we used for it.
2: We needed some <laughs> screening some screening materials. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. How many rattlesnakes did you see at Hogap? Dozens. <laughs> I spent one summer in Guernsey and oh my goodness, I had never They're seen a rattlesnake. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen a rattlesnake in the field before. And I uh, saw a rattlesnake and then found out that I could levitate.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, you weren't a fan of the danger noodles with the tickle sticks?
2: <laughs> it was, it was, it was. The funny thing is, it was so primal that I didn't even register it. I literally like floated away. It was like, oh, oh. got to your lizard brain.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, my it's lizard brain a, was there. It's such a creepy
1: sound. I have an amazing Snapchat, I think, from like my first experience there. I'm wearing, you know, I'm wearing my like, Uh, pink fraternity shirt, and I'm just like, there's rattlesnake behind me hissing, and I'm just like, hey everybody, meet Steve. Let's get close and see if we can mess with him. And I take like one step, and he like lunged at me, and I was like, all right, never mind, fam, I'm good. Yeah, Steve, I'll check you (laughs) later, bro. (laughs) (laughs) And my mother was not. I like sent that video to my mother. She's like, who are you? I raised you better. (laughs) yeah dude um you know as connor and both of you can attest like you know my master's degree was a transformative period away from some of those uh my undergraduate behaviors towards a more professional version of what you can say is me now Um, is it was it really uh, yeah i think i look back at some of my you're professional now (laughs) i think so i'm getting there (laughs) (laughs) doug says i've matured (laughs) (laughs) and then uh did you I'm trying to recall. I don't know why I'm trying to recall because I have your CV right in front of me. I already know the answer. So then from Hellgap, you started at Indiana, right? And pursued your master's master's PhD, correct? Yep. And uh, why did you
0: choose Indiana? Indiana Bloomington. I presented some of my research at the Plains Conference and ended up meeting my former advisor there who had also done some research on stone circles back in the day. She seemed pretty impressed by the research, so I uh, decided to apply to IU to work to work
1: with them. Understood. And I, I just remember the first time I met you was at Hellgap. Yeah. Was, I think for when the when the site became a National Historic Landmark, we had a huge party and yep. we were playing Battle Addle. And yes. that's where I also met Devin for the first time. Um, and Battle Addle, for those that don't know, part of Devin's research in his master's was to basically put foam nerf balls at the end of otlatl darts, put on a hockey helmet and baseball umpire pads and throw otlatls with these foam tip darts at each other. And that became like a game we played at hell gap to pass the time. We ended up with bruises. I think like one damn near fractured my ankle. Cause the, the, the dart punched through the foam ball and I just got like the entire force of that dart went straight into my ankle. And I, Marcel was furious because it was black and blue and I couldn't walk.
0: I remember challenging you because you, you, you had had a a fun day and didn't seem (laughs) too coordinated yet. So I challenged you and your second or third throw, you just caught me in the throat.
2: Oh yeah.
0: I underestimated you. Yeah. You know, it's,
2: Oh, crap. I think um, someone just (laughs) threw an adaladdle at the hemp fields behind my house. We have to end this segment right now. We'll catch you on the other side. (laughs) Welcome back to episode 31 of the Life in Ruins podcast. David has fallen and cannot get up at this point. We might see him in the third segment or we might not. Um, He hit his life alert button. We're hoping that he can get up and it'll be fine. We're joined by our guest, Matt Mackenzie who is a PhD candidate at the University of Indiana, Bloomington. So we kind of ended the last segment hinting at what you're doing for your thesis work and possibly dissertation work. So what what did you write your thesis on?
0: So here at IU, we don't have master's theses. We only have dissertations. Uh, we, (laughs) uh, yeah,
2: (laughs) just kidding.
0: (laughs) It's nice. We do our, our qualifying exams are pretty brutal, but for my dissertation, I'm looking at the archeology span of childhood on the Northwest Plains. So I'm kind of approaching this from, from several different angles. The first of which is something that I've almost gotten done with just need to crunch a few more numbers, and that is, how do we identify children's play areas in the archaeological record? So really kind of taking the approach of looking at archaeological analysis to develop hypotheses and develop tests to then see what indicators we can look for at archaeological sites. So I'm really interested in stone stone circles and small stone circles where children would have their play teepees. These can be anything from six inches tall. Obviously, you probably aren't going to see any imprint of those in in the archaeological record to uh, up to about five, six foot tall, where you could fit a few kids inside. And those largest ones, there's a bunch of historic photographs of them being weighed down by rocks. There's some actually showing where they are in the camp. So I'm looking at really how to identify them spatially. Then I'm taking that I'm taking some of that knowledge that I've gained and looking at how does this potentially represent childhood agency? Uh, I'm specifically looking at indigenous children here and I'm going to be looking at the boarding school system. So pretty much how are children continuing to engage in traditional play in the boarding schools?
1: So a couple things. And I know I can I can see some of our, our friends at Wyoming, like uh, Todd, Chase, Maddie Mackey, thinking, how do we find childhood in the archaeological record? You know, because you know, childhood is a abstract concept, right? In terms of you can't find childhood as an artifact, right? And so you're talking about finding things that we would associate with toys or or objects for children and, and reconstructing their placement. At some of these sites. So, how, you know, this is just me asking a question like, how do we know maybe like a play teepee six inches tall isn't maybe there was a plains architect who liked to make little model
0: teepees to show people what he was selling? That's completely possible. I work very heavily from ethnographies and some recorded oral histories, and children are talking about playing with these miniature teepees. But at the end of the day, there are other reasons that they could exist. And I have to take those into account with my research.
1: But you're using the ethnographic record of, of people in the 19th century, anthropologists in the 20th and 19th century going out, talking with indigenous people on the plains and, and noticing children have these items. And they they're very similar to what we could find in the archaeological record. Right. So it's not totally unfounded. It's very much based on real data and real human behavior.
0: Yes, and historic photographs. And then uh, I'm currently applying for grants to look at like the South Dakota State Historic Society archives and a few other archives in the region to try and find kind of your non-mainstream histories. Your ones that are separate from, say, Black Elk Speaks, your lives of ordinary people and what they're saying. Honestly, I wish
1: I had a play TP growing up that I can manipulate and see how they're supposed to be formed. Because, you know, my cousin just bought one. Uh, before the summer and made, you know, he asked me and Lana to come over and help out and to help out was like him standing back and watching me and my petite five, four, 70 pound girlfriend manipulate these like 20 to 30 foot poles and all of these canvas tarps to, to move his teepee from one place to another. And I had no experience on what I was doing and I was winded by the end of that.
0: That's how I met a lot of uh, my partner, Emily's cousins is just uh she dropped me off with one of her uncles one day and I had to put up a half dozen teepees with them. That's that's metal.
2: Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very much uh, thrown to the wolves or, um, you know.
1: <laughs> thrown to the bison, thrown to the throwed,
2: buffalo. Yeah, whatever, you know, whatever they are mostly associated with. So I'm interested to see how people have received your research kind of in general, because this is a question I think we all have in the back of our heads about archaeology like so you know mainly we focus on men as hunters or men as gatherers in the record so it's nice to see folks who are asking about like where are women in the archaeological record or where are kids in the archaeological record how how has your research been like generally received?
0: Uh, At first poorly because I had no idea what I was doing and people rightfully asked how are you
1: going to do that <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny I'm so sorry.
0: Uh, well, it, no it is because
1: that and... was my reaction when you told me what your research is about I was like <laughs> what are you talking about I, I remember like at planes in, in South Dakota when you're in Bismarck and you're just like yeah this is what I do that was like the first time we met yeah. outside of uh outside, outside of the hell we met that was the first
0: cool. time we met sober
1: yes <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> you tell me more about your research because i was trying to go to indiana i was looking at indiana for my phd um and that's also where i met emily and we we discussed that in her episode back in episode three wow in episode three so yeah so you you, you they, i mean it's an interesting problem right because yeah. children do exist that's a fundamental truth you don't have adults without children cultures all across the world have concepts of childhood now maybe the experiences differ when people come to adulthood are different but there is a lived experience of 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 childhood when you don't have the responsibilities of the adult. And there are those concepts and materials that are associated with children. like how do you keep children busy? How do you teach them how to be functioning members of society? And that's you know, you use that through toys and through play? so you you are approaching something that is that is instrumental to a human's life. and you are you are coming from a new question of like, how do we see this in the archaeological record? So you have the ethnographic record to back you up and to provide you a starting point for what? how can we see these things in the material past?
0: Yeah. And now that I kind of have my research designed together, I've gotten a lot more positive feedback about it. People are like, oh, yeah, that's this is something we should be looking at. And something that I think you brought up that is really important to understanding childhood is that you kind of talked about this idea of enculturation, teaching children how to be functional members of society. I think that's really neat, but that's not necessarily the focus of my research. Instead of looking at child rearing, which is that process of enculturation, taking care of them, making sure they're fed, I'm curious about childhood
2: itself. How do children view it? That's that's super interesting, especially because we don't see how kids grow up In prehistory, it's like it's not something that we can we have got or uh, grasped recently. So I love I love this idea about like trying to get in touch with that because it's because we're fundamentally different. You know, I was raised with an Xbox or a PS two or or whatnot, and I think this is this is really cool research to to talk about this. You know, to at least have this conversation and from a, a good research standpoint.
0: And I mean, it, it's challenging, right? It's not, it's not like I can uh, go to a deeply stratified site and just work on it for a few summers, write a dissertation about it. I'm having to go to six or seven different places in the nation to look at archives. And I mean, right now, just for kind of that spatial testing that I was talking about, my database is over 2,400 sites that I've had to hand measure a lot of maps on. <laughs>
1: Honestly, you have um, talking about how your research was initially reacted to and how it's kind of perspective from people that have heard about your research that has changed. I resonate with that because that's kind of been a similar experience to how I've looked at your research. I mean, I've always respected you as an academic, but hearing like, you know, early on how you've looked at it and then moving forward towards how you're your research plan has progressed, it makes a lot more sense, which is like fundamental to like any dissertation, right? You have a question, you don't know what you're doing. Everyone's like, oh, well, you know, how are you going to do that? And by the end, you know, towards the end of the whole thing, you have everything map, mapped together, right? Has anyone else in the literature kind of attempted to analyze these same experiences that you're looking at?
0: Yes, So there's another researcher named uh, Michelle Langley, who right before I took my qualifying exams, put out an article about kind of interpreting things as ritual versus interpreting things as childhood and brought in case studies from around the world, including play teepees. Well, last year I ended up kind of sending her an email thanking her for writing the paper and got invited to present at a conference in Australia with about... 1819 other scholars who are all looking at childhood in similar ways
2: that's cool I mean I'm glad there's um at least a recognition of that that in the record because it's like I like I said I mean it's it's at least a third or like a quarter or even a fifth of some people's lives where they live in you know in these these under um underage stuff so I'm glad um that there's there's this this consensus of folks who are at least asking the same question. So, and were you really interested in this question because of some of your work on the, on, in Wyoming and kind of the Western Plains?
0: Yeah, actually. So it's funny that uh, Carlton brought up Maddie Mackey back at the beginning. Uh, So I got a really, really rough NSF review when I first applied for funding because my, my old project was just looking at stone circles in general. It was poorly designed. It, it was kind of terrible, but it, it was a fair review, but man, it was rough. So I ended up, I was back in Laramie and getting some coffee at turtle rock and uh, ran into Maddie Mackey. So I started talking to her about what she was doing and, uh, she had wrapped up her thesis research on hand sprays. And part of that was looking at children. So we started talking about this and I started telling her about these strange like stone circles and miniature teepees that I had seen. And she kind of told me like, look into that.
1: That's dope. Huge shout out to Maddie Mackey. I was just emailing her the other day. I think both Connor and David, whenever David gets back, if he ever gets back up from his life alert of time, shut up. Um, (laughs) You're not supposed to be introduced yet. So Maddie Mackey, huge support. I imagine um, both uh, Connor and David could both attest to it. Like Maddie was kind of like when I entered the program, Maddie was like a mom for grad students, elder grad student, one of the the elder grad students who helped (laughs) a lot of us uh, younger grad students figure out what they were doing and knew a lot of connects. And it was honestly because of Maddie Mackey, when I worked at Alm Rock Shelter and I was looking for more employment, she was the one that told me to work at Hellgap. So, uh, you know, huge shout out to Maddie and uh, and also congratulations on the recent SAA publication on LaPrel that came yes. out as a report. So I was really excited to, to see that. Shut up. I- You're not supposed to be here yet. Um, <laughs> we haven't introduced you. Maddie Mackey, great. I'm so happy that she's going to help you. It's like, you know, we have a small field and the people that you know, they all help each other out and everyone you can have support. You know, this podcast is a testament to it. In terms of who you can rely on to create great content.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I wanna I wanna jump off of that and say that David has hit his life alert button and he is currently standing upwards.
3: I've fallen and I can't get up.
2: <laughs> he has a question for Mac.
3: Maybe not. What's <laughs> do up? It. Yeah, sorry, I, I Just I, do it. I literally have no idea what <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I do have a question if that was serious. In archaeology or in the past, if we were to dig up a site, what are the, the markers that like would show that a child was there? Like structures or tools or something like that? Or
0: uh, there's, there's several. The ones that I look at are play areas, but there have also been some arguments made for amateurly made and very small projectile points that could possibly be affiliated with one, children making them, and two, with children's bows. You also have some of the more obvious ones, like if you are lucky enough to go into a dry cave and find something uh, organic like a doll, that's a pretty pretty good indicator. I tend to stay away from research that involves human remains at all, uh, not my jam, but there is a considerable body of research uh, looking at uh, kind of what children are buried with. Solid.
2: Interesting. I mean, especially in, in North America, it's it's hard to breach those questions with respect for the indigenous nations that are behind them.
3: That's cool. I assume there's probably a lot of different ways we could we could see children in the past. It's just like maybe we haven't like, kind of like when Aaron was talking about his tattoo implements, like we might have overlooked a couple cactus needles or, or awls as like tattoo needles. We thought they were you know, for making hides or something. But, like, there's probably things like that that are clear indicators of children that we just haven't
0: thought of yet, maybe? Yeah, and childhood is also highly cultural specific, yeah. right? If I go 300 miles west from my research area, we're getting into kind of Great Basin childhood. And some of some of your Great Basin groups kind of interpret childhood differently and we'll have different archaeological indicators of childhood. Yeah, like pin the tail
3: on the bison i of, would walk 500
1: <laughs> miles
2: and, and i would,
3: would walk 500
1: more just to see, see the, the kind mind of, of person i was gonna go with the childhood verse with it but go, go ahead <laughs> just anyway but but clearly not good. however we have reached the step in our God.
3: <laughs> Just
1: <see. All> right. <laughs> we, ha- we have reached the step, the mile marker and this segment, and we will if be back I with segment three with our conversation. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> welcome back to episode 31 of life and Ruins podcast i am here with my co-hosts, co-hosts not coasts uh co-host uh david, and david has managed to finish up his uh, new product line with maybelline and answered his life alert so he will be joining us for this third segment as you've probably guessed so mac um before we begin on our heavy topic of the evening you know we've had emily van Alst from episode three she's been on before and she is your partner And I I wanted to kind of ask you, because, you know, you have a very unique perspective in the field of anthropology that you are dating an indigenous anthropologist, uh, partnered with an indigenous anthropologist. And I just want to know, like, how has that experience of being with an indigenous person while also studying an indigenous archaeological record, how has that contributed to your methodological and theoretical perspectives? Like, did you notice there was a change in how you approach things? And like, what has that been experienced for you fundamentally?
0: So... The biggest change was, for me, theoretically, where indigenous archaeology was, to me, was no longer a lofty goal. It became the normal expectation. Archaeology here in the United States should be for indigenous people. If you are working with native history, you need to make sure what you're doing is for indigenous people.
1: And how would you recommend people doing that? How would you recommend people's research be for indigenous people?
0: It's, it's really tricky, right? Like it's one thing to consult with native nations and talk to them and talk to them about your research, see what they want to be done. But it's also really hard to do that as a graduate student, because you have to have a level of trust. Right. And that's, that is actually a challenge that I'm running into with my research. Like I can talk to Emily, I can talk to her family, and uh the Hiako yate has been amazing to me. They've been super helpful, and they have shared so much with me. But at the same time, they are they're one family within a much broader region that I work in
2: so so you're you're trying to deal with this kind of larger mistrust of anthropologists and archaeologists and and trying to overcome that which is which is super difficult. I mean, we we don't have a great history with them. So how how have you like kind of overcome it so far?
0: With with my work, that's one of the reasons why I am well, one pretty much anything that comes out of this project, it is going to go back to the nations. Like my dissertation, every single native nation that I can identify as having used archival data from an individual from there or anyone's life history that I've used to create my research. I am going to coordinate with the nations to make sure that they have access to my research. First of all, that is beginning to develop that trust, right? But as I go into my career, it becomes more and more important to really to really engage with these nations and try and try and do a good job. Right. I mean, it's really hard because I am, I'm am the whitest of white dudes. Emily, make sure that I stay in line and make sure that I'm doing the right
1: thing. Dude, Emily keeps me in line too. So you're not alone with me. Yeah. Um, You know, I would definitely love to have you come down to the Pawnee Nation Museum in Pawnee, Oklahoma to present. I think that regardless if you use Pawnee ethnography at all, but I think that would just be fun to have you come down and spark some interest in some of our elders. You know, I'm, I'm pretty close friends with Emily and Mac at this point, and I've stayed at their house and like you had to learn Lakota as like a language requirement, didn't you? Yep. And their whole house is they're They're like, you know, those little, uh, what are they called? Label makers. Their entire house is covered in like Lakota vocabulary words on, uh, objects.
0: Yep. <laughs> we, we spent an afternoon going through and putting, putting vocabulary up because it's important to her and it's important to me. And, if we ever have children, they're going to be Lakota children, and I want to make sure that they have they have access to their family's language
1: dude that's that was really impressive like when I walked in and I saw all that stuff not only did my eyes i started bleeding as a Pawnee but uh <laughs> I thought it was like i thought it was amazing and and a great effort to do that well and it's
2: it's especially important because um you know there's obviously a lot of indigenous languages that are dying so just and it's it's awesome to see it like as simple as like a, uh, you know, a little label here and there that like sparks and keeps alive this kind of language. And that's, 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 that's absolutely fantastic. I'm glad you guys are still doing that.
0: The only thing Emily and I don't disagree on is the orthography. She likes to put hooks underneath her vowels for nasalization. I like to put an end hook after my vowels for nasalization. It's the one thing we disagree on.
2: Nerds. Um, for the for the
0: uneducated,
3: well, the educated audience, the uneducated me, can you define orthology?
0: Uh, orthography. It's the way you write yep. language.
3: You right. Okay.
0: Yep. Okay. I'm just
3: trying to help out the the average <laughs> journalist
0: listening to our podcast. Sorry, is it I don't
1: I don't orthology about birds? <laughs> I orthology is birds. 100.
3: percent Letter and number dyslexia. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs>
1: Once again, I just, the reason why I brought it up was to commend, commend you and kind of really establish that Emily, of course, being a Lakota person, highly recommend you guys listen to episode three again, back in our catalog. And moving forward, you know, Mac, I've, I've known you. I think we really haven't really had a strong relationship until, until, um, We've always talked since Hellgap that that we talked about in segment two. Um, but until you hooked me, you and Emily hooked me up with my current partner. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're the reason why I'm with Lana. In terms of that, we started talking more and really collaborating more. And something that has kind of come out of that new relationship with you and Emily on a more not just professional ground, but personal ground, that you experienced an event in your graduate career fundamentally changed the direction that you were going. And it's definitely not an experience that you've you've had to take on by yourself um that other people in the field have experienced and you know bef- before this episode we talked about if it was okay that we we mentioned this so for our listeners, we're not just like you know bringing this up to Mac and just like sneak attacking Mac so would you like to describe this pivotal moment in in your career?
0: uh yeah, we're really getting into the rough stuff here. <laughs> it wasn't just one event it was really kind of two events that were really terrible. The first was when I first told my former advisor that Emily and I were dating. They were very intoxicated and uh, they were not pleased about the news and they went off on me and called me (laughs) a worthless dime a dozen white man researcher. And it was just, it was terrible, right?
1: Holy shit.
0: And I, I stuck around after that. I, I just viewed it as, okay, they, they were drunk. I'm, and I talked to them about it. They apologized. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be fine. (sighs) Like one time thing. And then the following summer, and I mean, well, that put me in just like terrible headspace. And really, it, it screwed me up for the next four months. Then the following summer, I was working in the field with them and uh, they decided to drunk drive my students back from back uh, over three hours. After now, was
1: there was there someone in the vehicle? I mean, A, you should never drive intoxicated, yeah. but was there someone able to in the vehicle that could have driven who was sober?
0: Yes. And they assured me that that person would be driving back. And that was just, it was a massive betrayal of, massive betrayal of trust. And then on top of that, we were doing backcountry work and it just was not safe. I mean, before I uh, was an archaeologist, I worked at a Boy Scout camp for several years teaching outdoor skills. I've been camping my entire life. And I, like, I know how to run a safe camp. I know how to camp safely, even in the backcountry. And none of what this person was doing was safe. It was that was kind of a breaking point for me where I realized I cannot continue to work with this person. I cannot continue to work with a person who will endanger my students' lives. I'm just I'm not about that. So I reported all of this to the university and. The university. Took away this person's field school for a few years and gave them a slap on the wrist But I complete, I took this person off of my committee. I have a completely new advisor now who's amazing and a new committee member who's amazing. But this was a month before quals. So it was kind of a scramble to get through quals. And then there was a good few months where it's like all of the adrenaline that was keeping me going and all of the spite that was keeping me going, just trying to get to that next step kind of died down and it it took me a few months to kind of get my group back to figure out what I was about
2: and 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 just to clarify for folks is this the advisor that you had came to oh. IU yes. to to study with so it's it's yeah. reporting someone you actually actually respect and wanted to work underneath
0: yes uh and the only kind of like one of the only people in the region who did work in the region at IU. So like my current advisor, uh she works down in Mexico. So it's, there's, there's a limited number of connections with kind of the Northwest Plains archeological community, which is why I'm so thankful to a lot of the Wyoming people like y'all for keeping me in the mix, even though I moved away.
1: Yeah. I mean, I remember for professional reasons, you told me what was going on just due to our professional societies that that we're involved in. And I I remember you telling me this information. And, you know, I I talked to my my advisor, I didn't, I didn't address names. And I was like, I couldn't imagine in like a 1000 years, like being in a position that you were and actually I, I couldn't, I doubted myself if I had the ability to do what you did and report it. And that's because for our listeners, like when you go to grad school, you're looking for an Obi-Wan Kenobi. You were looking for a sensei. That is the person who is supposed to guide you through your graduate career and make you a professional. And what you did took an extreme amount of courage and determination and, and because of what you did, I have, I have an insurmountable respect for you um, because I personally don't know if I could do that.
0: To do so put my career at risk. If it was one of those things where it became like uh, this person, I said this, the other person said that, and a bunch of the faculty stuck with this other person, I I could have had no no committee here and kind of been been dead in the water, right? I'm glad it didn't turn out that way, but it was, I mean, I think Emily and I had a four or five hour conversation where it was just like, how do we address this? And we decided, we decided to have me to have me make the the official report because I was closer to my qualifying exams. And it's like, I could master out if I had to. And Emily would kind of, not get the worst of the blowback then.
3: Did you have to like meet with like a Dean or anything and sign a bunch of stuff or,
0: um, I met with a provost. I, I didn't sign anything okay. and I, I refused to because it's something that needs to be talked about. And it's like, I'm going up and I was going up against an institution, right? I was going mm-hmm. up against something that was a lot more powerful than me. Like the, Imbalance of power was so great with between both the uh, my former advisor and the institution, where it's just like I didn't sign anything. I made my report. I got out of there, and uh, I've had to answer some follow up questions since then. But
1: and this is like a larger problem in in the field and in academia in general with reporting advisors, right? And this is why where sexual assault and some of these other things get pushed under the rug. Even, you know, even historically in, in, in anthropology, right? Like how many uh, out of the three of you, and this is a general question, like how many of you know who Walt, Dr. Walter Taylor is from the 1940s theory? Uh, I didn't do the readings this week. Exactly. You know, this and, and there's a long line of history of when you attack people in power, you don't go anywhere. And for those that don't know, I didn't even learn about Walter Taylor in my theory class at, at Wyoming He's like this forgotten dude because he came back from world war II, did didn't have a tenure position and attacked like the sixth greatest archeologists of the time for their theory who were doing culture he- theory. And they buried his ass. Yep. And you don't hear about him. Like he's forgotten. And so for our listeners who aren't in academia, your advisor is pivotal to your career. And it is a tough choice to see some of the, and, and like, you know, academics are still people. They still do horrible things. And to be someone from a position of less power, like a graduate student, like Mac in his case, to step up and to do the right thing has, has consequences that impact you for the rest of your life, potentially, right? As you yeah. mentioned, Mac, you said it could have gone one or two ways, either the rest of the IU, uh, you know, the anthropology department could have sided with your former advisor, or they could have sided with you, and fortunately they sided with you. But you know, in the case that they didn't, like you said, you would have mastered out. And then where would you be,
0: right? Yeah. And one of the biggest impacts that had on me was if I were to run a field school now, if I were to run a field program now, it would be dry. I have become very, very aware of how people can use alcohol to further that imbalance of power and I think everyone should feel safe in archaeology. Everyone should have a fair shot to feel safe in archaeology and i I've had drinks with all of you, right? yeah, and I'm having I met, a glass I've of met wine you having a drink <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm having a glass of wine right now talking to you, but to me, field work is a professional space, and especially with students, we need to make sure that that starts out as a professional space and not having. This idea that it's a party, that's a free for all, but that it's an inclusive, safe place.
3: Yeah. To piggyback off that, I don't want to segue too hard, but like I've been to multiple field schools, multiple, I mean, like dozens, if not like whatever in the 30s number is of different excavations and sites. But like I have seen alcoholism just like rampant in archaeology. And especially in CRM, like it was pretty bad, the, especially at field schools, though, like I can just I mean, I'm a, I'm trained to be an observer, you know, and like I've seen kids like feel pretty like pressured to drink because everyone else is like even like, you know, and it's it's like you want to fit in at the same time. And it's like, yeah, I don't know, It just there's a lot of it, I think in moderation, like obviously it's like it's fun if you're like over 21, whatever, but like just as a culture, like I think it, there's too much of it, maybe I don't know. It's a hard yeah, topic. There
0: is. Uh it is. And I mean I can tell you for sure, especially when I was when I was dealing with some of the stuff with the former advisor, I definitely drank too much. It was a coping mechanism and it's one that I recognize as being a problem and it's one that I take care to avoid now.
3: Yeah. I never blacked out in my life um except for the night i shouldn't ever put this on a podcast but the when i defended my thesis like i felt like that was one night i could just like you know do whatever but that like, was a fun night <laughs> I, I wish i knew about it but like I that's the thing like that's that's not good <laughs> like i no I, I had a great day during the day but like that i just woke up in my bed and like apparently my shoes were someone I mean, nicely took my shoes off and stuff and put me in a bed, but me. I was like, I was at the bar a minute ago and I've never done that before. And it was like in an archeological setting. And I was like, damn, that's not good. No, <laughs> but
2: yeah, I want, I want to state first, um, thank you, Mac for coming on and telling your story, especially in this last segment. We super appreciate you, um, taking your time and, and putting your neck out to make these situations right. So I want to applaud you for doing that. And because this is a life in ruins podcast, we have to ask the question, Mac, if given the chance again, would you still choose to live a life in ruins?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It's, there's been ups, there's been downs, but I, I love what I do and I want to keep doing it the rest of my life. Great answer. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much,
1: Mac, for coming on. We just interviewed Mackenzie Corey, who's a PhD candidate at the University of Indiana, studying, you know, how can we see childhood in the archaeological record? Um, Mac, do you have any social media that you would like to plug?
0: Uh, Yep, I'm just at Mackenzie Corey on Twitter. So pretty easy there.
1: sweet and for our listeners um his instagram twitter and other social media is in the uh, podcast description i have one last question to end
3: it on if you get if you could answer in like a sentence what is the most important thing people should know about like children in prehistory and children in archaeology
0: children have agency children can make their own decisions and that is one of the coolest things that we are just not talking about
3: Awesome. I was hoping you would say that because I remember you telling me that at the bar actually and I was like, that's a very good point.
1: <laughs> All right. And everyone, that was episode 31 of A Life in Ruins. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to A Life
3: in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins podcast.
2: And you can also email us at a life in ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. This is Connor at the end of episode 31. Usually at this point, I would tell you like an extreme dad joke, but I want to take this time to devote to, you know, I want people to be able to express themselves in colleges in and anything like that and please report any sort of abuse that you've been going through you know we, we are here for you and we want to support you and we want to make this feel better so thank you for your time awesome,
0: awesome.